0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I believe I've shared this with the saints that are joining uh, Trinity Church, but it is our plan this morning to begin a series through the book of Ephesians. This will be the first book that we will go through together as a church. This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians 1, verses one through two. I'm going to read these verses, and then I'm going to pray briefly once more. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You pray once more with me. Father, we repeat and ask the same prayer of that psalm or that song we just sung a moment ago, that your victorious word would go forth, that it would bring strangers home, and that it would, uh, Lord, comfort your people. Uh, we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I said, I have chosen to begin our days as a church preaching from the book of Ephesians, and I've chosen to do this for many reasons. Uh, I want to share two of those reasons with you now. The first reason, brothers and sisters, why we're going to be considering the book of Ephesians is that this is a book that is packed, jam-packed, with doctrine about the church. It's packed with what we call ecclesiology which is a fancy word for the doctrine of the church. One commentator on the book of Ephesians says that in the book of Ephesians, we see the church not only as God's masterpiece of reconciliation, but also as his instrument for bringing about that cosmic reconciliation, which is his ultimate purpose. That is to say, brothers and sisters, that the church is not only the end or the, mi- the means of God's mission in the world. It is the end of his mission in the world. God in Christ is creating a people for his glory. Um, the church is not just the, the instrument through which God is accomplishing his goal in the world. No, it is his goal in the world, a people for his own possession that are zealous for good works, a people known as the church. And I can think of no better way, as a new church, indeed a brand new church, uh, a better thing for us to consider than what does it mean to be a part of this great community called the church? What does it mean to be a local gathering of God's people? So that's one reason we're going to be in Ephesians. The second reason, brothers and sisters, is the book of Ephesians is packed with theology, theology that is crucial for the Christian life. It's packed with theology, particularly the doctrine of salvation, what some call soteriology. We're arriving this morning as what has been referred to as the crown and climax of Pauline theology. the crown, the climax of Pauline theology. As we go through this series, you can be the judge if that is true. The Romantic era poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge described Ephesians as the divinest composition of of man. So lofty is the book of Ephesians, he uses a word we don't even use anymore, the divinest. How divine is it? It is the divinest, the most divine. We can see something about what's distinct and special and peculiar about the book of Ephesians by comparing it to Paul's other letters. So when I was a child and my father would lead us in family devotions, if we ever read a, uh, a book of Paul's, if we ever read a letter of Paul's, my father would always ask us, now kids, is this a letter where Paul is happy with his readers, or is this a, Paul, a, a, a letter where he's disappointed with his readers? What a great question to ask. Is this a happy Paul letter, or is it a disappointed Paul letter? Well, most of his letters you can tell. The book of Ephesians, actually not so much. It's written with very little personal knowledge of the readers that he's writing to. Uh, Rather, this is a letter that is, by and large, a treatise about the doctrine of salvation. It's a letter in which we see a heavenly view of the drama of salvation. We have God's master plan of redemption set forth to us, especially in chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters four through six, we see how do Christian people respond to that doctrine of salvation? How do they respond to what God has done in redemption? Okay, this morning, we're going to be in verses one and two, the introduction to this great epistle, and I have three points this morning. Point number one, a trusted apostle. Point number two, a faithful church. And point number three, a certain blessing. We have a trusted apostle, a faithful church, and a certain blessing. And if you're uh, not familiar with what we call expository preaching, uh, something we believe as a local church is we believe that when I get up here, it's not my job to preach my own thoughts or preach what I think is important. Uh, It's to preach what God's word says. And when I offer something like an outline like that to you, it's sort of what I understand to be the outline of the text, what seems to be what Paul wants to get across here. So consider with me point number one, a trusted apostle. Verse one says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We're going to ask the text questions. We're going to get to know who is Paul. According to the New Testament, who is this person that's writing this great letter? I read one commentator that said, I don't know why um, these days in Western society, we don't start letters this way by identifying ourselves. Now, if you get an email or a letter, you have to go to the bottom to see who's writing to me. Um, it seems like in the first century, it made more sense. They write their name at the top, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Well, who was Paul? Many things I could say about Paul. Let me say three things. First, Paul was Saul the Jew. Paul was Saul the Jew, Uh, We can think sometimes that Paul in his name Paul was a name that was granted to him after his conversion. Um, This is not so. Rather, Paul, his name Paul was his Greek name, and he's in sort of the Greco-Roman world. That's his Greek name that he does when he does Gentile business. And Saul is his Jewish name. So personally, he is Saul the Jew, and Saul was a contemporary of Jesus Christ. And as a Jew... He, until the age 30, zealously committed himself to Judaism. Paul belonged to the highest echelon of the religious elite. We know he was tutored by an esteemed teacher named Gamaliel. And uh, listen to how he writes of his pedigree in Philippians 3. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcise of the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Who was Paul? Paul was Saul the Jew. But secondly, we see that Paul was a sinner, saved by God's grace. He was a sinner, saved by God's grace. In that same Philippians text, he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Friends, we can... Forget about this. Paul was a sinner, like every one of us is a sinner, but Paul was a sinner in a pronounced way. Paul was a vile man. Paul was profoundly evil. Before his conversion, Paul ravaged the church. He hated and violently persecuted the church. He despised Christ and his cause in the world. Nothing brought him more pleasure than to disrupt the Christian message. And to disrupt the spread of the gospel, even if that meant imprisoning saints, even if that meant separating children from their parents, even if that meant even delivering Christians over to their death. He was a reviler of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's this same reviler of Jesus Christ that God would own as a vessel for his own will. He would be won by the power of the gospel. Listen to how Paul refers to uh, the gospel in 1 Timothy 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who would to believe in him for eternal life. Friends, Paul understood himself To be the greatest sinner that ever lived. He said, Look, if you need proof of the power of the gospel, you need to look no further. I am breathing confirmation that Christ can save anyone. Paul believed that his life bore eloquent witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ. He was a sinner. But indeed, brothers and sisters, he was a sinner who was saved by the almighty grace of God. Paul was Saul, he was a sinner saved by grace. Paul was also a sufferer. Uh, there's many things in the life of the Apostle Paul that are emblematic of Christian experience, that are to show us how a Christian should go through the Christian life, and no doubt, Paul suffered in such a way. But like his sin, Paul was a sufferer who suffered in pronounced and profound ways. Jesus Christ even pointed this out about Paul upon his conversion. The Lord said, he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, reflecting on his own suffering, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, Apart from all other things, there is my daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. Paul was a sufferer. Paul was painfully acquainted with persecution and pressure. He suffered faithfully for the name of Christ. And he suffered knowing all the while that such pain, such suffering in his life was preparing him for an eternal weight of glory. It was preparing him. It was training him for heaven. He says this in Second Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All suffering was preparing him for heaven. Well, sisters, this isn't the main idea of this sermon, but this is something we should all appreciate. Some of you are going through significant trials right now. Some of you are going through acute seasons of pain and suffering, and you might be wondering, what is this for? And the reality is, the Bible doesn't always give answers for why we are suffering, why the Lord puts us through such distress, why he puts us through such pressure, but he does tell us that all our trials in Christ, they are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, they are, repair, they are preparing us for heaven, for eternal bliss with our Lord. Amen. This is why the Puritans referred to this life as the training room for heaven. We are being prepared for glory. Paul was Saul the Jew. He was saved by grace. He was also a sufferer. And continuing to ask Ephesians 1 questions, we should be asking, where is Paul as he writes this letter? Well, Paul, continuing with his suffering, he's in prison for a second time. And it's, he's chained in Roman house arrest. And though he's chained in Roman house arrest, he has the freedom to write letters to his friends. He has freedom to write letters to churches. He also has freedom to receive guests. Um, if you're putting your Bible together, it's likely Paul is writing these letters where we find him at the end of the book of Acts. So in Acts 28, we see Paul, he's, he's in prison Uh, But he's able to receive gas. That's the Paul who's writing the book of Ephesians. Uh, For you people who like dates and dead people, uh, this is probably around 60 to 62 AD. And it's also the time when he's writing the book of Colossians, the book of Philippians, and uh, Philemon. Okay, what does Paul say about himself in the text? What does he say about himself in Ephesians 1? It says that Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. That word apostle, what does it mean? The word apostle means messenger. It means representative. It means envoy. And it's very important that we understand what does Paul mean when he says he's an apostle because we actually live in a day where some ministers carelessly claim the title Apostle. My name is Pastor Zach DePrima. That is my title. I'm not an apostle. I'm not in that role that the apostle Paul served. To be an apostle meant something very specific to Paul. Apostles were physical witnesses of the resurrected Lord. And they were explicitly charged with authority in the church. For Paul, this involved bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. For Paul, this involved strengthening other churches. For Paul, this involved writing literally writing much of the New Testament under direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is a right that no one has today. No one has that right to edit the Bible. No one has the right to add words to the Bible. In fact, you should immediately distrust anyone who says, hey, the Holy Spirit told me X, Y, Z, or the, the Holy Spirit has revealed to me ABC. Unless they're referring to their devotions that morning, where they opened up the word of God and they saw the will of God in the text. Now, brothers and sisters, the the apostles were those great men that God erected as pillars in the early church. Each of them died as martyrs. Some of them penned the very letters and narratives of the New Testament. This is why When we read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we say we believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. The apostles number among those holy men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And thus, we as a church, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of these men and their words that have established the church. We stand on the apostles' foundation. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. But then he says in verse 1, he says, By the will of God. It's important when we read the Bibles, especially an introduction, like that's just not sort of fill in the the blank Christianese. Like Bible Mad Libs, this is just a kind of Christian y phrase to say, I should say by the will of God. No, again, this meant something very specific to Paul and something he wants to get across to his readers. And it's here, brothers and sisters, we must understand and ask ourselves what is the will of God? Or in particular, what is he referring to here when he says the will of God? And it's here we have to realize that the Bible talks about the will of God in a few different ways. It talks about the will of God primarily in two different ways. I'm going to give us sort of two theological categories. Don't quit me on this. We have God's will of purpose as well as God's will of precept. Two main types of will we see in the Bible. And when we see that phrase, the will of God, it's normally referring to one of these two things. God's will of purpose, what he has ordered, and God's will of precept, what he commands, what he desires of his people. God's will of purpose, decree, God's will of precept, and command. What is God's will of purpose? Well, this is what God has ordained from before the foundations of the world. This is, God knows the end from the beginning. He has ordained all those things that come to pass. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. If God has ordained something to be, so it shall be. That's why many of us are accustomed to singing that hymn, whatever God ordains is right. God has ordained something to be, it's right. It's according to his will of purpose. It's what he is purposed to be. And you think of when Paul says in Romans 9, he says, uh, why does he still find fault, asking that of God? Why does he still find fault? fault for who can resist the will of God. Friends, God's will of purpose cannot be thwarted. We can't undo or change what God has ordained, and more on this in the book of Ephesians. That's God's will of purpose. Well, then we have his will of precept, his will of command. This is what God commands his people. This is what God wants of the world. This is what God wants of those who follow him. So, for example, Paul writes in the book of Colossians around the same time, he talks about his friend Epaphras. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He's saying, hey, this guy Epaphras, he's really faithful, and this is what he prays for you. He prays that you would be mature and fully assured in the will of God. Well, when he says the will of God there, he's not saying that you would know everything that God has ordained to be. We can't know that, right? God knows the end from the beginning. The secret things belong to the Lord. No, he's saying that you would know how God wants you to live, that you would know his word more, that you would understand his revealed will more, and that you would live in conformity to that will. Or in 1 Thessalonians 4, I love this verse because so many of us want to know what does God want for me? What does God want for us? He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does God want for me in this life? What does he command for me in this life? He wants more conformity to Christ through my daily, pound for pound, step by step, sanctification. Conformance to his will of command. Okay, back to Ephesians 1. What will of God is Paul referring to Here. Friends, based on the context, I think it makes most sense that Paul is referring to the will of God's purpose, that Paul had been ordained to be a messenger of the gospel. I think it makes most sense that he's referring referring to the will of purpose. The Lord had ordained to establish Paul as an apostle and use him as his chosen vessel. And I believe this because this is how Paul reflects upon his own ministry. This is what he says in Galatians, he says, but when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says, I'm not just Paul because Jesus commanded me to. I'm, be- I'm Paul the apostle because Jesus planned me to be. God purposed me, purposed for me to be an apostle. This is a part of his Eternal plan. Well, friends, why does it matter that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as a church? What does that mean for us as we move through the book of, of Ephesians? Friends, when we hold in our hands a letter from the apostle Paul, we hold a message from the true and living God. We read the words of a man who was seized from his mad career of sin and thrust into the very will of God by his almighty hand. The letter of Ephesians, friends, like all of Scripture, is not optional advice for the Christian. No, this is the word of God, thanks be to him. Like all of Scripture, it is both marvelously, truly man's word and God's word, established by the sovereign will of the Lord. This, Paul, was a trusted Apostle consider, secondly, point number two: a faithful church. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus, probably this is seven years after he had last been in Ephesus. So though Paul wasn't very familiar with most of the people he's writing to, this was an area that he was intimately connected to. He had spent two and a half or three years there, and he had once possessed intimate knowledge of this church in Ephesus. However, it's possible that by now he knew very few of the Christians in Ephesus. Uh, I was privileged to be a part of a church plant seven years ago in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, I was able to help plant this church with my brother Alex. My brother Alex is here tonight. He'll be preaching to us this this afternoon. Um, We were able to plant that church and two years ago I was called to Atlanta to be a pastor at Mount Vernon Baptist Church in order to plant this church. And uh, so I've been away from North Carolina for two years Every time I go back there, I know very few of the people at that church, Um, just a handful of the folks that originally planted with us. Why? Because that church has grown, and God's word has spread forth, and has united more believers to that local body, and though I'm very, I love that church very much, the, the makeup of that congregation has changed over the years. Well, here Paul, he's writing to the Ephesians some seven years after he's been in Ephesus, and the gospel has spread, And it's possible that he's actually not writing just to one church. He could be writing to a handful and circuit of churches in Ephesus, which could be evidenced by the fact that he says the saints in Ephesus. But brothers and sisters, regardless of whether or not Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus or churches in Ephesus, we know that he's writing to ordinary Christians like you and me. He's writing to ordinary church members. Now, here we need to see how does Paul describe the Ephesians? How does he speak of these people in Ephesus? He says to the saints. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus. That word saint is used a lot in the Bible. The word saint is Paul's most common noun describing Christians. It appears 39 times in his letters, it appears nine times in the book of Ephesians, more than any other letter in the New Testament. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, how that word saint, in our vernacular, the way we use our language, uh, we tend to not use for one another. If you're a Christian, you're not probably used to thinking of yourself as a saint, and you're probably not used to talking about other Christians in your life as a saint. Meanwhile, the word Christian is used very little in the Bible, but the, the word saint is used profusely. It's here that I think the Roman Catholic Church... Has done much to confuse people. Uh, We think of saints as people of pronounced proven worth in the kingdom of God. They're A plus Christians. They're Navy SEAL Christians. They are turbo power beast mode believers. They're special. Friends, that notion, you just have to realize it's foreign to the New Testament. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, get used to realizing you're a saint. Get used to understanding that you are a saint called to be part of the people of God. According to the Bible, for one to be a saint means to be a child of God. That means to not be a saint means to not be a child of God. According to the Bible, and the mind of Paul, the word saint was the most fundamental basic name for a Christian. What does it mean? Friends, it it literally means holy one. Uh, set apart ones. Uh, It means holy one. And even as I use that word holy, that has several different connotations, several different meanings, some of which that overlap. Well, the word saint, according to Paul, is not far removed from the way the Old Testament uses the phrase. They were the people of God. So Psalm 16, the writer says, As for the saints in the land. They are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight. That's the, the people of God. friends, there's, there's many things I want to highlight about. What does it mean to be a saint? Here are three things. To understand what does it mean to be a saint? Well, first and foremost, to be a saint means to be set apart. It means to be set apart, in particular, to be set apart from the world. So while we may tend to think of saints or saintliness primarily as referring to moral purity or some sort of qualitative character, to the New Testament it means first and foremost primarily to be set apart. To be a saint means to be selected. Saints are the elect from every nation. They are chosen from before the foundations of the world. They are special people who have been given special blessings They've been given the oracles of God. They are recipients of the mystery of the gospel. They are delivered from the domain of darkness that have been cast into or transferred into the kingdom of Christ. They are separated from the world. As the book of Titus says, they are people of God's own possession who are zealous for God's grace. They are people of God's own possession made so wholly and solely by the grace of God. They are set apart But secondly, friends, to be a saint does mean to be cleansed. It does mean to be morally pure. There is a type of character that attends saintliness, that accompanies being a child of God. So listen to how 1 Thessalonians 3 talks about this. It says, uh, so that he may establish your hearts, talking about God, establish your hearts, blameless in holiness, before our God and Father, at the coming of Lord Jesus with all his saints. To be awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ and to number among his saints means that God has established our hearts blameless and holy. Revelation 19, which talks about the blessed wedding between the church and the Lord, says it was granted to her, that is, the bride of Christ, To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. To be a saint means there's some righteous deeds that accompanies that sainthood, that saintly life. Saints are those who have been called to be the people of God's own possession. They have been called to be a people who are zealous for good works, marked by inward and outward righteousness. So to be a saint means to be set apart. It means to be cleansed. Thirdly, it means to be united to Christ through faith. To be a saint the new covenant means that we are united. We are one with Christ through faith. 1 Corinthians 1. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus... Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere you see saints, they are those who are resting in Jesus Christ. They are those who are exercising faith in Christ. They are looking not to themselves, but to outside themselves in the person of Jesus Christ. They are in Christ, and they are so through faith. Philippians 1, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Philippians 4, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He's not saying greet those saints that are in Christ Jesus. No, all of the saints, all of them are in Christ Jesus. He is the one in whom they have faith. Well, friends, if a saint is one who is in Christ Jesus, if a saint is one who is cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, if a a saint is one who is set apart for the glory of God, it's worth asking yourself, Christian, how are you different from the world? If you are in Christ, you have been set apart by God. You've been granted a new status by his will and for his glory. He has removed you from the world. That is who you are. Therefore, it's worth asking, in what ways do I am I manifestly distinct from the world? Like, if a neighbor or an alien from Mars or like some innocent bystander were to observe your waking hours, how would they conclude your life is distinct from the lost? How would they conclude that your life is distinct from the world? Would they have any evidence that you are united to Christ through faith? Would they have any evidence that you have been cleansed by the power of Jesus Christ's blood? Would they have any evidence that you have been set apart by God? There are doors saints never walk through which sinners know well. There are rooms saints enter every day that are completely foreign to the world. There are paths believers walk daily which are left untread by the lost In the life of the saint, there is a purity pursued. There is a fruit grown. There is a sin confessed and there is a fellowship fostered. There is a breathing, thriving relationship with Jesus Christ that goes public in one's life. Christians look like something. The call to follow Jesus and the call as a Christian is to become who you are. You are a saint so you are supposed to live like it. You are to subjectively realize what is objectively true of you. Brothers and sisters, so much as there is breath in our lungs and so much as the Lord tarries and so much as we as God's people are called to be Trinity Church Kennesaw, let us live lives set apart for God. And as I say this, perhaps you're gathered here today and you are distressed by what is the sheer lack of holiness in your life. You're clinging to Christ, and you're distressed by my walk isn't consistent. My walk isn't as it should be. There are things that I do that I should not do. There are things that are undone in my life that I should do. I'm not growing. I'm not progressing. I feel constantly weighed down by my sin. Well, Christian, there's so many things that I would say to you. But one of the things is that I long for you to realize that the gospel power that has saved you can change you. And the power of God unleashed in the gospel not only sets apart saints, it actually changes them. It gives them power to fight their sin. It gives them power to pursue holiness. It gives them power to pursue spiritual disciplines and the fruit of the Spirit. Christian, you have every resource at your disposal to be a new creation in Christ. You have every resource at your disposal in the Holy Spirit to fight the sin of your life. Nothing holds you back in your background. Nothing holds you back in your socioeconomic status, your racial heritage. There is nothing that holds you back from completeness in Christ and a thriving relationship and walk with him Paul describes them as the saints who are in Ephesus. How else does Paul describe the Ephesians? He says, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. And again, we have another word, another phrase that has more than one meaning. It has more than one connotation. And we should be asking ourselves, when we see that word faithful, that word faithful, what exactly does it mean? often when we use the word faithful, we mean something like loyal, a person who's who's trustworthy, a person who's reliable. So, when we say even that God is faithful, we're saying that he is consistent. We're saying that he's steadfast. He is faithful, loyal to his character, and he can be counted upon. He is a strong refuge and strength. God is faithful. Or if I describe a, a husband as faithful, what what am I normally saying? I'm saying he's faithful to his wife. He doesn't cheat on her. He's loyal to her. He loves her. He lives with an undying devotion to her. That's what a faithful husband is. Well, the other definition of faithful is the one that I think this text is using. And is that that of being full of faith. Being full of faith in something or more particularly someone. So if that is true, the word faithful here refers not so much to the character of the people described. It doesn't refer so much to the character of the Ephesians, so much as the object of their faith. So the point is, not that the saints in Ephesus are so great, it's that they have such a great Savior. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. You remember in John's Gospel, in John 20, the Lord appears to his disciples, this is after his resurrection, and he appears to most of his disciples, save one, Thomas. He's not there. He appears before his disciples, Jesus leaves, the disciples tell Thomas, and what does Thomas say? He's, that sounds great and all, but not until I put my fingers into the wounds of our Lord will I believe. Literally the verb, verb, verb form of, of having faith, the verb form of faithful. And then you know Jesus appears to him. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, have you believed, Thomas? Because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus is saying there, blessed are the faithful. Blessed are those who are full of faith in me. They believe the witness. They believe the sure testimony of the apostles. Friends, Christians are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In the words of John Murray, faith is a whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. Faith is whole-souled reliance upon Jesus, whereby we say, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to his cross, I cling. I don't look to my own life. I look to his life, his life, his death, his resurrection, everything he is, everything that I am not. My only hope in life and death is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and he died on a Roman cross for my sins. Christians believe in truth, they believe in the gospel. They are those who are faithful. They take Jesus at his word. Those who are faithful, they believe in what is written. Those who are called faithful, they know their need. Those who are called faithful, they repent and run to the Son of God. They rejoice in glorious hope that this Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's that great exchange. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I don't trust in my own doings. I don't trust in my own performance. I trust in the blood of my Savior. How should this help us, brothers and sisters? I hope you can see. Christian, your faith is not primarily judged by the quality of faith's subject, that is, yourself. Some of you kids, you know how to diagram a sentence? A sentence has a subject and a verb, right? It often has an object or a direct object or indirect object, but it has a subject and a verb. Imagine this sentence. Uh, Pastor Zach has faith. Pastor Zach is the noun. The subject has faith is the verb. All right, Pastor Zach has faith in the object, in Christ. What I want you all to understand is the nature of faith Saving faith is not about the strength of the subject. It's not so much about the quality of the faith, it's about the sure object. It's about the certainty and steadfast and promises kept by our Lord. It's about Jesus Christ. Not the quality of the faith, it is the object of the faith. Faith is not some ambiguous concept, some amorphous concept, Belief in a higher power or something bigger than yourself or all things are gonna shake out in the end. No, faith is quality because of the reality, because of the truth in which we rest. Faithful people are full of faith in truth. They are full of faith in God the Father Almighty. They are full of faith in a real man named Jesus of Nazareth. And they're faithful In his reconciling blood and his resurrection and sure return, and they are sustained by such living faith in a living Christ. Paul writes to a faithful church, and that faithful church tells you so much less about the church and so much more about the character of God. Consider, lastly, point number three a certain blessing. A certain blessing. Here we've arrived to the actual greeting of the letter. Verse 2 Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this construction, this greeting is similar to almost all of Paul's readings, and they are uh, all of his greetings, and they almost always include four things grace, peace, God the Father, and Jesus Christ. And those things represent, I think, sort of two categories. you got gifts, and you got givers of those gifts. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the givers? Well, friends, the, the Father and the Son, as, as we shall see in Ephesians, the Spirit, they are cooperative agents. They are the Godhead, and they bring about salvation to all of God's elect. We are saved in the triune name. And in this greeting, they are the givers. Well, what does Paul say they give? He says they give grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. Peace to you would have been an ordinary greeting, uh, ordinary Jewish greeting. You've heard that word shalom. That's an ordinary greeting that, that Jews use for meaning peace to you. And Paul is using that greeting deliberately so, but he is lifting it into a Christian realm. He's lifting it and giving and packing it with Christian ideas and theology. To Paul, I believe, and we can, I think this text shows, that grace and peace are the beginning and end of salvation. So the end of our salvation, that is the goal of our salvation, is a perfectly peaceful relationship with God. It's to be completely and totally reconciled with him, and we experience that already, but there's a level to which we don't yet experience that fully. But the grace that has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God and is completing our salvation. That's why John Newton says in that hymn, Amazing Grace, was grace that brought me safe thus far and it's grace that will bring me home. Peace is the goal of the salvation and grace is the instrument bringing us towards that goal. What more of grace Well, grace, friends, is God's saving action in Christ. Uh, The Old Testament parallel would be his covenant love. It is undeserved, unmerited favor. And we're going to be talking about grace a lot this year because grace is all over Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Grace is everything in the Christian life. As we'll sing in a moment, grace is marvelous grace. It pardons, it cleanses within, and it is greater than all of our sin. If you want to know how great is God's grace, can it forgive me? Can it achieve my salvation? Friends, where where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more in a word Grace is the gospel in shortest compass. For those united to Christ, God shows unmerited favor. Grace to you. Brothers and sisters, grace to you. We have grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. But he also says, peace. Peace be with you. Paul's Jewish readers, the offer of peace was an echo of Aaron's blessing that we see in number six. Aaron Moses' brother, what's known as the Aaronic blessing. You've probably heard something like this before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Friends, the mention of peace here, it's no casual salutation like Peace, guys. It's not like that. No, no. Paul is referring to an objective, settled standing with God. This is how he refers to peace in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have a new relationship, a settled standing with Him through Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith. Into His grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, as this is the goal of the Bible is to bring people back into fellowship with God, and for us to have any comprehension of peace, we must appreciate we must appreciate what peace implies. Friends, the promise of current peace it implies past war. The blessing of current fellowship implies former fracture. Our resolve status implies rebellion outside of Christ. Men and women are completely and utterly hopeless. Brothers and sisters, friends, we need to realize every single person with breath in their lungs, they fall into two categories. There are those who are in Christ and they are those who are outside of Christ. They are those who are rebels according to their own will And those who are at peace with God, who have been reconciled to Him in Christ. We're either sinners who stand condemned, or we are children of God made righteous through faith in Christ. We are either those without hope and peace in the world, or we are those reconciled to God by the blood of His Son. Friends, there's nothing in between. There's nothing in between a sure and reconciled relationship to God and complete and total fracture. And it's so important if you're not a Christian for you to comprehend this. You might not be a Christian or might self consciously not be a Christian, and you might think, yeah, maybe God is real, maybe He's not, but I'm, He's not my enemy. I'm not a rebel. I don't oppose Him. I think Christians are great. They can do their own thing, they can worship God, they can think that all that stuff is real, but. Me and God, we're okay. I don't hate him. I'm just not a Christian. Well, my friend, you must realize what God's word says about you. And you must not trust, I I beg you to not trust your own rendering of yourself, your own assessment of yourself, because the scriptures say the heart is deceitfully wicked. And who can know it? The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And unless you trust in him, you will perish in your sins. The call on your life today is to turn to Christ. It's to acknowledge everything that he is. It's to acknowledge everything that you're not. And it's to turn away from your sin and to lay hold of the Lord in faith. You say, I'm sorry, God, about my sin. I trust in Jesus. The Bible says, all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish, but they will have eternal life. And you must realize, until you turn to him, you are at enmity with him. You are a just recipient of his wrath. And you need, more than anything in this life, to turn to the living Jesus Christ, is real and he can save you he is faithful and just to forgive us all our of all our sins all those who come to him he will by no means cast out he calls on the sinners he calls on the wayward he calls on the religious he calls on the hypocrites he calls on everyone to come to him and find food as a thirsty man find drink as a beggar find money without price he freely offers himself to all those Humbly bow before him Own him as their Lord And repent of their sins you Pray with me Father your grace is marvelous It freely pardons us It cleanses us And in your word, you have given us such rich promises in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would receive the blessing today. That we would experience your grace afresh today. Your mercy through the blood of your son. And Lord, that you would bring us to greater consciousness of the reality of our salvation. Greater understanding of the blessed peace that you have secured in Christ. Lord, we are told that he can make peace. He can bring us to a settled standing with God. Lord, please help us to comprehend this grace with greater fullness. Lord, we pray that those of us who feel wayward, those of us who are wayward, that we would follow Jesus Christ more closely. What we ask not you would give us What we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us. We ask this, the merits of our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.